companies cannot rely on price increases over time to be a thing or the thing that's going to help make the revenue goals. And investors need to understand that. Management needs to understand that. What that means is, is the price you go out with and the net prices where you land. I mean, you really have to think about, can you live with those? That's Mina Datta, a partner at Sidley Austin. Later, we'll hear more from her and the rest of the panel as they discuss how the pharma industry plans to deal with new U.S. drug pricing policies. I'm Caleb Hodson, filling in for our producer, Teresa Carey. And this is The Top Line from Fierce Biotech, Fierce MedTech, and Fierce Pharma. Today is Friday, January 20th, and today we have a very special episode. Last week, we hosted another Fierce JPM Week. It was an exciting gathering of some of the greatest minds in pharma and healthcare. So instead of bringing you the most important med tech and pharma news of the week like we usually do, this week I'll give you a glimpse into the Fierce JPM conference. So if you're feeling bummed that you missed it, keep listening. The pharma industry has never had price regulations in the U.S., but guess what? That has now ended. Last year, the Biden administration passed new policies aimed at lowering drug prices and reducing inflation. Some pharma companies are already blaming these new regulations as a reason to coal their pipelines. Fierce's Fraser Kansteiner hosted a panel discussion at Fierce JPM Week. He talked with Nick Shipley from Biotechnology Innovation Organization, Jibai, a business and public health professor at Johns Hopkins, Sandeep Dutagupta from Anilam, Sarah Emmon from the Institute for Clinical and Economic Review, and Manishka Datta, a partner from Sidley Austin LLP. The six of them had a lively discussion on how companies will navigate these new rules to keep their bottom lines strong. Here's a glimpse. This conversation comes at a, a curious time for our nation's drug pricing landscape. Uh, For years, drug makers have largely had free reign over the costs of their medicines in the U.S., but that era seems to be in part coming to an end. Last summer, the Biden administration passed policies designed to let Medicare haggle over the costs of certain medicines, cap out-of-pocket expenses for seniors, and curb inflation. While the latter goal is industry agnostic, it includes mandates pharmas have already singled out as motivation for potential pipeline purges. This panel will attempt to dig into the ways companies and organizations plan to navigate the Inflation Reduction Act to keep their bottom line strong. Nick, I'd like to kick things off with a big picture view of the situation as we enter the new year. Can you give us an update on Bio's view of the U.S. drug pricing landscape at the top of 2023? Yeah, uh, thanks, Fraser, and, and thanks to all my my co-panelists here. I uh, I think it's a really interesting time. I mean, we're hosting this uh, this panel just as the new Congress is kicking off. Uh, you've got a change in the uh, in the on the House side in terms of the Republican majority um, uh, taking over, um, but it obviously reflects uh, some shifts in political reality um, in the wake of IRA passing that that affect that landscape as, you, as you're talking about. I think when we look at it, there's the, there's a very obvious need to keep addressing and working on the Inflation Reduction Act the implementation mitigation for for what they got wrong. I, I don't think it's a controversial opinion to say that 
Um, there were there's a lot of this was thrown together uh, late in the process on the floor. I think that's that's an unfortunate way that a lot of legislating gets done now, and it has to be done via this reconciliation process that also makes some of those policies I- imperfect. Uh, I think there's a lot of things that uh, um, can be can be done to improve the situation uh, around uh, uh, small business, rare disease. Um, I think there's a, an unfortunate uh, disincentive on investment on, on small molecule work, uh, which is uh, particularly negative on, on the oral oncology space, the neurology space. Uh, so I think there's a lot of things like that that we want to keep working on and keep pushing. I think similarly, we're, we're looking at a, at, a, at a kind of a drug pricing, pricing world uh, where they did not address uh, the, the rest of the kind of financial supply chain, um, the PBMs, you know, the, those sorts of things. I, I won't go through the whole laundry list there. Um, but there, there's a lot of a kind of missed opportunity in what I just generally call the out-of-pocket experience for patients. Because at the end of the day, if you're the patient, what's most important to you is that out-of-pocket number, the copay, the coinsurance, the deductible. Um, those are all things that were, were kind of left out of this bill. Um, you know, and there's a variety of reasons that, that kind of led to that moment. But it's something, again, we, we will hope um, that Congress will take up in, in 2023 and, and kind of re-examine and see what else that can be done. Um, and I think you know, the last point I'll make is that, you know, as I said, we're, we're kind of starting a new Congress here. It's a really big freshman class. Uh, there are, I, I think, at the end of the day, north of 80 freshman members, uh, you know, two days ago, a week ago, they were sheriffs, lawyers, real estate agents. Now they're a member of Congress. They get a vote over Medicare reimbursement policy, over FDA, you know, policy. We should have no expectation that they are experts in this field. Sometimes we we kind of take it for granted that they know all the ins and outs of Part B versus Part D, um, and we and we need to spend some time educating them on that. I, I think one of the things that um, the biotechnology space in general, if you will, has has kind of suffered from is not spending the time on uh, on education with uh, policymakers that they need to. It's it's a complicated area. There's there's just infinite different things and variables that are out there. Um, and we got to spend the time to make sure people understand it because the industry is kind of a crown jewel of the of the United States economy. I think it's it's really important. You see other other nations around the globe trying to develop their own uh, kind of biotech economies because it's 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 kind of such a uh, such a valued piece. Um, so it's it's something that I think will be ongoing. Um, but the industry really needs to grapple with that that education level. Um, I'd really like to open this one up a bit more. Uh, Mina, Sandeep, G, and Sarah, would you like to give uh, your own 2023 pricing sit rep, maybe utilizing some of the expertise and background from your companies and organizations uh, before we get into more detail? Uh, Mina, let's start with you. Sure. Thank you so much, Fraser. So I think Nick just did a really nice job kind of giving the political and policy um, piece of the 2023 landscape. Maybe I'll pivot a little bit to the commercial and market access landscape of it. From my perspective, as I kind of look across, you know, wide sector of biotech um, and pharmaceutical clients across the industry. But, you know, for me, 2023 drug pricing landscape shines a light on three main areas for the industry. Um, We have to move forward, right? We can't stand still while guidance is being issued while these important policy issues need to be addressed, business still has to operate. So what should companies be doing now, regardless of their size or scale? Um, The first thing is to really focus on the intersection between 
their regulatory process, their drug development process, and drug pricing. It used to be the case um, years ago that you know regulatory and drug development was doing what it was doing, and then there'd become a point in the process where you know the, the the discussion around setting a price or if it was a new formulation of an existing drug, you know, kind of what that pricing would look like and things like that. It would come later. It would be a follow-on. Th- those times are gone. Those times are gone. Companies now must, it's, an imper- it's a business imperative, have a cross-functional team with market access professionals, folks like Sandeep, um, with the R&D and regulatory approval folks to have a joint strategy to really understand what should be developed, in what order should different indications be pursued based on the regulatory regime that has been thrust upon the industry for now, you know, for, for whatever it is, where it sits at this moment, you know, how are we going to deal with that? It's, there's a permutations analysis that needs to be done. Um, about what's going to be pursued in what order in terms of indications, um, you know, dosing, uh, formulations, and the like. So that's that's um, sort of one area that industry needs to focus on in 2023. And we still see variation across the industry on this point. Not every company has kind of a perfect cross-functional team in this regard. And getting that piece right is going to be fundamental to commercial um, success. The second piece, um, which is, I think, obvious to everyone, but I'll state the obvious, is that you know all of this legislation um, is designed to kind of stymie price increases over time, right? Um, and we know at the state level, states have passed legislation that require transparency as it relates to new drug drugs and their product prices, as well as price increases. The uh, Inflation Reduction Act has new inflation rebates that it has implemented in Parts B and D to mimic um, the inflation rebate regime we see in Medicaid. And so what do we take from that? I mean, it's the big picture point that companies cannot rely on price increases over time to be a thing or the thing that's going to help make, you know, the revenue goals. And investors need to understand that. Management needs to understand that. And, um, you know, what that means is, is the price you, you go out with and the net price is where you, where you land. I mean, you really have to live, think about, can you live with those? Does that over time sustain the product? And um, what gets so lost in this conversation the, you know, the revenues that come from the first indication may be the revenues that fuel the R&D for the second and third or for a new product. And so we're not just talking about, you know, revenues equal profits. Those revenues often go back into research. And so understanding that all of, all of that will get affected by the fact that the first price you go out with um, can, can often set the, set the tone. Um, and then, you know, um, I think the third thing that 2023 shines a light on in the drug pricing landscape is we, I'm sure this is not the end of it, you know, <laughs> we had the, uh, you know, Affordable Care Act, um, you know, now we have the Inflation Reduction Act, 
in between, there has been major drug pricing legislation that's affected companies at every level, every angle. And, you know, the IRA is certainly a, a big one, but um, I think what we need to, to, to do and make sure, you know, management and investors understand is that there can and likely will be more. This session's in fo- focused on the Inflation Reduction Act. There's another major piece of drug pricing legislation that's unfolding this year, which is the Drug Wastage Refund Act, a, a whole separate piece of legislation that was passed in 2021 that is getting implemented this year. So the IRA is not the only thing. It's not going to be the only thing, you know, in the next couple of years. So we have to anticipate things that we we cannot see at this time. And we'll definitely get into some of those other uh, potential pricing reforms as well. Um, Sandeep, do you mind chiming in? Uh, I'd love to get your perspective as uh, the representative of the, the sole pharmaceutical company on our panel. Sure, and I think you know Nick and Mina gave a, a, a quite a bit of the perspectives. I think there is a you know internal element and there is an external element uh, for for at least for pharma and biotech. I think the internal element, you know, as as Mina highlighted. Um, uh, even beyond regulatory, even the clinical research has not been exposed to having been asked to look into the pricing policy at the time of launch in order to decide how to invest, how to prioritize, and how to build their clinical development program. So, you know, those was not in the radar screen for most of the organizations. I think the IRA has completely changed that paradigm. Now it's like access, pricing, um, and drug development groups are basically guiding what needs to come out of the lab or what even when it comes out of the lab, is it worth developing further? I think that's a paradigm shift from an organizational uh, development standpoint, uh, first and foremost. Um, I think you know evaluating each of the innovation coming through the pipeline through the lens of IRA is going to be almost a strategic imperative that pharma has to adopt rather overnight in order to be the player that it has been in the field of innovation and bringing uh, molecules to the market to meet the patient needs. So that's definitely a shift that, you know, the organizations have to adjust relatively quickly. Um, in In 2023, I think, you know, the launch prices are still going to be higher. Uh, I, I don't see any 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 change to that, uh, but I think that from the payer side, the request or at least getting into that constant mindset of evaluating the value of the product is going to become more and more critical and probably more and more frequent, because I think both sides are now adjusting or will going to adjust through this IRA. Like what it happens for manufacturer, what it happens in the marketplace, what it happens for payer providers to their PNL as well. And so I think 2023 is going to be a quite a bit of educational year, uh, as, as Nick was highlighting, not just for legislators, but also the key players in the, in, in the marketplace. Uh, so I think that's definitely you know, going to take up uh, quite a bit of understanding on both sides. And... At least from, you know, not just from our or Lina, but in general, I think um, the almost an emergence of more value-based agreements uh, will come through from the payer side as, you know, both sides are trying to understand how to evaluate the value of the product and how to best position it for the patient that needs it the most. So I think for 2023, it's going to be a bit of a transition year, you know, for, 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 for quite a lot of us. 
Um, and in the orphan disease, I think, you know, as Nick was mentioning, um, we were a little bit constrained in certain aspects of the IRA in terms of our life cycle planning, uh, indication expansion for existing, you know, products or molecules. Um, we have to start evaluating R&D a little bit more uh, closely, um, even before probably, you know, phase one study starts. So I think that's going to be a, quite a bit of a dynamic year for, for, for 2023, as, 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 uh, as I can see uh, from, the, from the biopharma side. And G, could I ask for your insight? And then we'll end this first question with Sarah. Thank you. Um, I have a disclaimer to make. I'm right now a visiting scholar at CBO Congressional Budget Office in the Health Analysis Division. So my views here do not represent CBO's view. Um, so in my opinion, I think there are two fronts this industry should focus on in 2023. The first one is the, the drug price negotiation provision, right? In the RA, um, which is going through rulemaking. As we all know, there are $3 billion budget allocated for the rulemaking process, and many people are being hired, and you know, it's a very complicated process. But if the industry can focus on the details of the rulemaking process, I think that can mitigate the risk. You know, things have been down there, but, but right now there, there is the opportunity uh, to invest in that process. So I think that will reduce the uncertainty uh, if if you know there's good investment in that area. Um, you know, we have published a paper several several weeks ago on the PROS1 with some accounting professors. We showed that among all 10 industries in healthcare, so there are 10 industries in healthcare. Um, if we look at their 10-year risk and return, the pharma and the biotech are the industries have the highest risk and the lowest return. Doesn't matter if you look at the accounting numbers, we'll look at the stock market return. So that tells us these two industries are very mobile, right? The, the money are very mobile right now. In total, we have market capitalization of about $3 trillion in biotech and pharma. But in the all other eight healthcare industries combined, there are only $4 trillion. So $3 trillion from the two industries, $4 trillion from the remaining eight industries. But the capital is very mobile. So, you know, I, I think the U.S., um, the American people just cannot afford to let the private money build them out, right, if there's substantial risk. So I think that's really the first focus that this industry should, um, should put effort on. The second one um, I'm thinking is the 340B program. You know, politically, it is um, not very feasible to keep pounding the same thing, right? Not only in this gridlocked uh, Congress, current Congress, but you know, in the in the short run, in the future, I just don't think that's politically feasible to come back to some heavy-handed things about pharma. So I think that's an uh, opportunity window for the industry to think about how to do something about 340B. You know, 340B, uh, if you look at two, uh, 2004 number, it's only about $2.7 billion being purchased. Uh, the drugs by the covered entity. But right now it's $44 billion. So it's exponential uh, rise in the size. So I think that many members will have to do something, right? So the, you know, the evidence is there. So I think this is the opportunity window for, for the industry to, to think about, you know, if something can be done, at least the revenue risk can be mitigated to some extent. And then Sarah, if you could close this out, please. 
That's a very big burden in this amazing panel to be the last to comment on what 2023 is going to look like from a drug pricing perspective. And I have two words that keep coming to mind as I was hearing everyone chime in, and, and I largely agree with everything that's been said today. One is this is an opportunity to be adaptable. Right. So I spent a decade in the biopharmaceutical industry and I saw changes. It was when we were negotiating biosimilars. Like I was there when we started calling it biosimilars instead of biogenerics. Right. Like I've been there thinking about the ways that we think about policies and the ways that we think about spurring innovation. And if I've learned anything from being both in and an observer of industries, it's pretty adaptable. I loved seeing a piece from BB Biotech, the investor group that talked about the IRA and was basically like, nope. This is no big deal. This is going to be fine. People know how to adapt. Fred Ledley at Bentley has some really great work talking about the ways that, like, yep, again, if we have like guidelines for what we what can we expect, what we can expect, we have the ability to adapt and make this work. So I see an amazing opportunity to really refocus the conversation away from I'm going to scream about that high price. Nope, I'm going to yell at the PBMs about the rebates. Instead of doing all of that, let's talk about the grand bargain. And we have the innovation that patients are desperately waiting for at a price the healthcare system can afford. And I think there's a framework here for what's been put forth. So imagine this, right? We've got a lot of stuff we can kind of influence with implementation, right? They are doing some rulemaking, doesn't have to go through the official process. What if CMS exempted from negotiation any drug that was deemed fairly priced by a third-party independent group? right? Why can't we have a conversation about the drugs that need focus after their monopoly period should kind of be over, right? Because we got the patent thickets that are making things go on a lot longer than they should. So we might have this backstop mechanism to have a way to ensure fair pricing. But what if we had another flip side to that? Okay, you're not going to be subject to Medicare negotiation if you actually price fairly. When we have a system that's rewarding innovation, real innovation, things that matter to patients and their family with high prices. And then we have pressure on the system to make sure that the payer community is ensuring fair access. That's the grand bargain that we can all celebrate. And then we never have to have this panel again because we're all celebrating that we get exactly what we want. Investors are happy because they've got a good return. The manufacturers are happy because they know exactly what they need in terms of that clinical benefit that they should see in their trials. And then payers are like, great, it's fairly priced. Everybody comes swim in the pool. All right. So that's just my take on this. I think that this is going to be a season of adaptability and that the companies who are going to be successful are the ones who are going to see this as an opportunity to knock it out of the park. Excellent. Thank you all. Coming up next, we'll continue to hear highlights from JPM Week. Next, we'll hear about how Bayer plans to drive growth this year. But before we dive into that, I want to remind you that JPM Week was full of amazing programming. So much so that we can't cover it all in one episode. So, we have another JPM special episode. It is an episode of Podnosis. That's our sister podcast produced by our fierce healthcare team. The episode coming up on Wednesday, January 25th is also dedicated to fierce JPM Week. So, if you haven't listened to Podnosis yet... Now would be a great time to add it to your queue. Podnosis, spelled just like it sounds, and we're the only one with that name. Early last year, Christine Roth left her position at GSK to join Bayer as its new oncology business head. The company is not known for its oncology treatments, 
But Roth hopes to change that. She wants to establish Bear as a strong competitor in the cancer space. Bear Oncology's crown jewel right now is prostate cancer drug Nubeca. The drug nabbed a new indication mid-year doubling sales. It is expected to pull in around $3 billion in peak sales. Bayer is pushing towards a goal of $30 billion in sales by 2030, which will do by growing its assets and pipeline. During JPM week, Zoe Becker talked with Christine Roth about how Bayer will use the prostate cancer drug Nubeca and other candidates to drive growth. Here they are. Thank you for joining me today, Christine. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. We're happy to have you. So um, let's start off by talking a little bit about last year and going into the next year. Um, I know this is a big question, but how would you sum up 2022, which I know is your first year heading the business? And what would you say is in the cards for 2023? So I have to say 2022 was an extraordinary ride in my first 10 months heading up the Bear Oncology Strategic Business Unit. And I think we have a lot to be proud of. Um, we've continued to grow our inline assets, the majority of them showing double-digit growth while launching a major new indication for Nubeca. Uh, and in fact, that major new indication and our performance to date has led us to significantly increase our guidance uh, for Nubeca to achieve peak year sales of $3 billion. So a real blockbuster in our portfolio. Wow, that's amazing. So yeah, speaking of Nubeca, um, mm-hmm. it's really been on such a roll since around mid-2022. So how do you plan to bring that momentum into 2023? Sure. So a lot of the momentum has been driven by our original indication, um, but new growth obviously coming from our new indication in metastatic hormone-sensitive prostate cancer with the release of the AeroSense data and the first wave of approval. So you know, the growth for Nubeca in 2023 will be built upon continuing to capture market share in our indicated patient populations, as well as continuing to roll out the approvals and market access negotiations in additional countries and regions. So in Europe, uh, in China and Japan, namely. Could you describe a little bit of Bayer's oncology development strategy? Um, do you plan on focusing more on internal efforts or external partnerships or maybe a combination? It's absolutely a combination of both. And I think before my arrival, Bayer had made some very significant plays to increase the fill and flow in our early uh, oncology pipeline. So um, the deals that we made, the acquisition of a company called Vividian, for example, um, we'll have our first two uh, clinical INDs for our first two clinical stage assets for Vividian coming this year. We're very excited about that. And that's one way that we've increased our activity in the early space. We also have our own internal research and early development organization in oncology, which is um, really driving a combined strategy for both early and full development focused on three core pillars. So those pillars are our heyday or our, we're famous for our precision molecular oncology. Obviously, last year we announced the uh, opening of BRIC, the Bayer Research and Innovation Center in Cambridge that is focused on PMO. Uh, Then we have next generation IO moving beyond the checkpoint inhibitors. And our last pillar is around targeted radiation therapy with products like Zofigo. So across those three pillars, we'll be looking to bring uh, either our own homegrown assets, accelerating through them, them through the clinical development process, as well as being very active in BD uh, in places that align with those three pillars for us. Okay, I see. So then how does oncology fit into Bayer's overall pharmaceutical strategy? 
So obviously, Bear uh, oncology is a key growth driver for Bear. And at our Capital Markets Day in 2021, now it's hard to believe it's been that long ago. We stated an ambition for the pharma organization and for oncology. And for pharma, that would mean to hit 30 billion in sales by the year 2030. And oncology is earmarked to be a third of that. So we have a lot of room to grow with our inline assets and with our pipeline um, to achieve that ambition of $10 billion in sales by the year 2030. Um, And the organization is putting resources behind that. So a disproportionate amount of our R&D investment is coming towards oncology and a large portion of our BDNL efforts are focused on enhancing our oncology pipeline. So what areas within oncology interest you particularly, and what are some key developments that we should look out for in 2023? So for Bayer, obviously, we've built a very strong foundation in prostate cancer with two assets that have been shown to uh, improve overall survival, Nubeca and and Zofigo. And for both of those assets, we have uh, important developments coming in 2023. So for Nubeca, I mentioned the ongoing uh, rolling approvals uh, for the Aerosense data in Europe, Japan, and China, and ongoing uh, access and reimbursement negotiations that will bring that important therapy to more patients around the world. And then for Sofigo, there's an important study called PEACE-3, um, which will again expand the indication base for Sofigo as well. So that's what we have to look forward to in prostate cancer this year. I think another uh, area of interest for us, given our strength in precision precision molecular oncology, is the new INDs coming from Vividian, looking at targets that were previously believed to be undruggable, taking a different approach to them with the chemoproteomics uh, platform that they bring to the table, and accelerating the delivery of those assets should we see promising data in the phase one studies. Bayer is prepared to do that. I think another place where there's a lot of interest is in cell and gene therapy. And while Bayer has a very um, robust effort underway through uh, a company called Blue Rock, we haven't yet tapped into that for oncology. So either through BDNL or through our own in-house developments, if we find the opportunity to apply cell and gene therapy for oncology targets, we are fully prepared to do that. And then I'd say another area of interest for us um, as part of our strategic evolution in the SBU is to start to focus more on discrete patient populations that continue to have a high unmet medical need um, and a limit to the number of treatment options that are in development for them. So while everyone appreciates the fact that lung cancer is one of the largest markets in oncology, there are segments of the lung cancer patient population that still have a tremendous unmet need. So across our three pillars, precision molecular oncology, next generation uh, immuno-oncology, and targeted radiation therapy, we're looking at how can we bring those technologies to advance the standard of care for patients with lung cancer. So those are some of the things that we really have a lot to look forward to in 23. So what products do you think will carry sales this year? Do you think it'll be similar to last year? It will be. Uh, I think we're going to see a little bit of a reversal in who's going to come out on top in terms of Bayer Oncology sales. Uh, Stavarga last year, uh, Nubeca kind of came in in the end and took that position. And I think that will be the same one-two punch for 2023. Uh, Nubeca being our leading sales um, medicine and Stavarga close behind. I see. Um, So what trends in oncology treatment, what kind of trends do you see in the industry as we enter the new year? 
So I think some of the trends are going to be continuation of, of trends that we've seen for the past few years in terms of treatment. And so one of the most notable is obviously the growing use of combination therapy in oncology. I think what will be new uh, and interesting to watch for 2023 is moving beyond doublets. So, you know, two medicines to treat a single disease to the triplets and potentially to quadruplets and all of the challenges that come with that. I, th I think another trend that we're going to see is, uh, again, the cell and gene therapy space. Um, the benefits have been delivered clearly for hematology patients, but I think we'll see more success in the solid tumor space uh, moving into 2023 and beyond. And then I think um, I mentioned it earlier, but across modalities, I, I think we have a new toolkit in our hands in terms of modalities to deploy against some of the more challenging targets in oncology. So I've, I think we'll see some targets that maybe people have given up on that uh, by deploying new modalities like chemoproteomics or cell and gene therapy or next generation IO, things that affect the tumor microenvironment versus uh, a checkpoint inhibitor or a combination of checkpoint inhibitors. I think those things are all going to, uh, to see some progress uh, in the coming year. Wonderful. Thank you, Christine. That's it for The Top Line. I'm sound engineer Caleb Hodson. You can find out more about these topics in our show notes at fiercepharma.com. Look for podcasts. And that's The Bottom Line from The Top Line. <laughs>